Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am recording this podcast for you still in Paris, where I will be leaving very shortly to go to Germany. But before I get on that plane, I am going to finish reading for you today, Working Woman and Mother, the 1916 essay written by Alexandra Kolontai, which I started reading quite a while ago. I've actually been on the road uh, quite a bit since I left Bulgaria, and I have been doing some wonderful events around the book, Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism, and its various European translations. Many of these events were actually scheduled for 2020, but obviously because of the pandemic, most of them were canceled. And because I was going to be in Europe to do some research, some of the organizers, the publicists and editors got in touch with me and have agreed to have some compensatory events around uh, the various translations that came out during the pandemic. So I've, you know, done quite a few interviews in, in Spain when I was in Barcelona and I was just last week on France 24, again, talking about why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence. I'll leave some links for you if you're interested in the show notes to this, um, episode. But I also did a wonderful bookstore event with Rebecca Amsalin, who was my special guest uh, last week. And uh, I'm giving a lecture in Germany uh, next week at the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. So for any of you listeners in, in Berlin or the environs, if you're interested, I believe that lecture is open to the public, although I know that seating is restricted because of the sanitary measures in place for the coronavirus. In any event... It's been exhausting, but it's also been really wonderful to meet people, to actually do live events again, to see actual faces, even though they're masked in the audiences, um, to, to get to talk to people and, you know, explain, uh, my ideas, hear their ideas, hear their experiences. It's been really wonderful, uh, in the last couple of weeks. I was also in Belgium as the guest of the Belgian Workers Party. And uh, I did a big interview in the Standard, which is a Flemish newspaper there. I'll, I'll put a link in the sh show notes for anybody who reads Flemish. And, um, but before, uh, I, I get off on too much of a tangent about all the crazy things that I've been doing, I want to come back to Kolontai and talk a lot about this article since it's been, if you're, you know, if you're actually listening to these as they come out, it's been a while since I read parts one and two. And I just want to remind you that this is this wonderful article where she talks about these four different women named Maria. And she uses these little anecdotes about their lives in order to put forward her views on what a socialist state should do to protect the working mothers, uh, basically women who are mothers are going to become mothers in the working class. And because she, she draws this very stark differentiation between the conditions of motherhood for the bourgeoisie and the conditions of motherhood for working class women. And so the reason that this is such an important essay is because Kolontai actually researched and wrote this massive book 
on social protection for women. And so she wrote this in part for the Social Democratic Party of Germany. She was very much doing primary research, what we would think of as almost legal research, on all of the laws in Western Europe that were put in place to protect mothers, working mothers in particular, and to protect families and children. So Kolontai knew a lot. This is a really massive book that she wrote. And what she does in this pamphlet, this is 1916, is she tries to reduce down into kind of a small nugget size all of the information that she has about these laws that have been put in place to promote the health and well-being of, of new mothers among the working class. And the thing that's really great about this essay is that although it's written in 1916, it's literally just a year, a little bit over a year before she is going to become the first commissar of social welfare in the Soviet Union, the new Soviet Union in 1917. And you can actually see historically that many of the policies that she talks about in this third part of the article, which I'm going to read right now, are the policies that she ends up putting into place in the Soviet Union, which I think is really interesting and fascinating because you can actually see the development of her thought. And then you can see how she applied it in practice when she finally had the ability to do so when Lenin and the other Bolsheviks empowered her as the first commissar of social welfare. All right. So this is part three, the final part of this essay. And I'm going to start with a section called maternity protection. This is Kolontai. The law must protect the mother. Even now, Russian law, Article 126, Conditions in Industry, gives working women in large factories the right to four weeks leave at childbirth. This, of course, is not enough. In Germany, France, and Switzerland, for example, the mother has the right to eight weeks leave without losing her job. This, however, is not enough either. The Workers' Party demands for women a break of 16 weeks, eight weeks before and eight weeks after birth. The law should also stipulate that the mother has the right to time off during the workday to feed her child. This demand has already become law in Italy and Spain. The law must require that creches be built and other adequately heated rooms be provided by the factories and workshops where babies can be breastfed. Maternity insurance. However, it is not sufficient for the law to protect the mother merely by seeing that she does not have to work during the period of childbirth. It is essential that society guarantees the material well-being of the woman during pregnancy it would not be much of a rest for the woman if she were simply prevented from earning her daily bread for 16 weeks. That would be dooming the woman to certain death. The law must therefore not only protect the woman at work, but must also initiate at state expense a scheme of maternity benefits. Such security or maternity insurance has already been introduced in 14 countries. Germany, Austria, Hungary, Luxembourg, England, Australia, Italy, France, Norway, Serbia, Romania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Russia. In 11 countries, including Russia, the working woman insures herself at an insurance bureau, paying weekly contributions. In return, the bureau pays out benefits money. The amount varies from country to country, but nowhere exceeds the full wage and also provides the assistance of a doctor and midwife. 
In Italy, the working woman pays her dues and receives help from special maternity bureaus. Further contributions are paid by the owner of the factory where she works and by the state. Even in this case, however, the working woman has to shoulder the main financial burden. In France and Australia, the working woman does not have to take out any kind of insurance policy. Any woman, married or unmarried, is entitled to receive help from the state if she needs it. In France, she receives benefits over a period of eight weeks, 20 to 50 kopecks a day, sometimes more, besides help from a doctor and a midwife. In Australia, she is given a lump sum worth about 50 rubles. In France, a system of substitute housekeepers has also been organized. Towards the end of a woman's pregnancy, a friend or neighbor who has attended the free course on care of pregnant women and young children comes in to help. She continues to make daily visits until the mother is well enough to get up and about again. She tidies the house, cooks dinner, looks after the baby, and is paid for this work by the bureau. In France, Switzerland, Germany, and Romania, the mother also receives benefits from the insurance bureau during the period she is breastfeeding her children. The first steps have thus been made toward providing security for mothers. What are the workers demanding? All that is being done at the moment is, of course, too little. The working class is trying to see that society takes upon itself the difficulties of childbirth. The working class wants to ensure that the law and the state shoulder the most pressing worries of the working woman, her material and financial worries. Although the working class realizes that only a new society, the large and friendly family mentioned earlier, will take upon itself the full care of the mother and child, it is possible even now to ease the life of the working class mother. Much has already been won, but we have to struggle on. If we work together, we shall win even more. The Workers' Party in every country demands that there should be maternity insurance schemes that cover all women irrespective of the nature of their job, no matter whether the woman is a servant, a factory worker, a craftswoman, or a poor peasant woman. Benefits must be provided before and after birth for a period of 16 weeks. A woman should continue receiving benefits if the doctor finds that she has not sufficiently recovered or that the child is not sufficiently strong. The woman must receive the full benefit even if the child dies or the birth is premature. Benefits must be one and a half times higher than the normal woman's wage. When a woman has no job, she should receive one and a half times the average wages of women in that area. It should also be written into law, and this is very important, that benefits be no lower than one ruble a day for large towns and 75 kopecks a day for small towns and villages. The mother should also be drawing benefits from the bureau for the entire period she is breastfeeding her child and for not less than nine months. The size of the benefit should be about one half the normal wage. Benefits should thus be paid out both before and after birth and should be paid directly into the hands of the mother or some person authorized by her. The right to receive benefits must be established without any of the conditions which are in force at the moment. According to our Russian law, for example, a woman must have been a member of the Bureau for three months in order to be eligible. A woman must be guaranteed the free services of a doctor 
and midwife and the help of a substitute housekeeper as organized in France and to some extent in Germany and England. Responsibility for ensuring that the law is observed and that the woman in childbirth received everything to which she is entitled lies with delegates elected from among the working women. Peasant and nursing mothers must have the legal right to receive free milk and, where necessary, clothes for the new baby at the expense of a town or village. The Workers' Party also demands that the town, Zenstvo, or Insurance Bureau build creches for young children at each factory. The money of this should be supplied by the factory owner, the town, or the Zemstvo. These creches must be organized so that each nursing mother can easily visit and feed her baby in the breaks from work that the law allows. The creche must be run not by philanthropic ladies, but by the working mothers themselves. The town, Zemstvo, or insurance bureau must, at its own expense, also build a sufficient number of one maternity homes, two homes for pregnant and nursing mothers who are alone and have no work. These already exist in France, Germany, and Hungary. Three, free medical consultations for mothers and young children so that the doctor can observe the course of pregnancy, give advice, and instruct the mother in child care. Four, clinics for sick children such as have been built by the Women's Labor League in England. Five, kindergartens where a mother can leave her young children, the two to five-year-olds, while she is at work. At the moment, the mother returns from work tired and exhausted, needing peace and quiet, and immediately she has to start work again, coping with her hungry, unwashed, and untidy children. It makes all the difference for the mother to call for and collect her children well-fed, clean, and happily full of news, and to have her older ones, who have been taught to help at the kindergarten and are proud of their know-how, giving a hand around the house. Six, entrance-free courses on childcare for young girls and mothers. Seven, free breakfasts and dinners for pregnant and nursing women, a service which has already been started in France. These measures must not be stamped with the bitter label of philanthropy. Every member of society, and that means every working woman and every citizen, male and female, has the right to demand that the state and community concern itself with the welfare of all. Why do people form a state if not for this purpose? At the moment, there is no government anywhere in the world that cares for its children. Working men and women in all countries are fighting for a society and government that will really become a big, happy family where all children will be equal and the family will care equally for all. Then maternity will be a different experience and death will cease to gather such an abundant harvest among the newborn. What must every working woman do? How are all these demands to be won? What action must be taken? Every working class woman, every woman who reads this pamphlet, must throw off her indifference and begin to support the working class movement, which is fighting for these demands and is shaping the old world into a better future where mothers will no longer weep bitter tears and where the cross of maternity will become a great joy and a great pride. We must say to ourselves, there is strength in unity. The more of us working women join the working class movement, the greater will be our strength and the quicker we will get what we want, our happiness and the life and future 
of our children are at stake. Okay, so that's the end of the pamphlet. Obviously, this is a direct appeal to working class women in Russia in 1916. She's laying out a very clear program with bullet pointed steps. She has these seven very clear steps about what she thinks the state should do in order to support working women and their children in order that all children should have the support of society. And again, you know, with few exceptions to the extent that she had the resources available to her, Kollontai actually puts this program into reality when she becomes the minister of uh, social welfare, the commissar of social welfare. And I think that, you know, what's key here is this idea of the big happy family and that this should not be a philanthropic enterprise. This is not about the rich sprinkling crumbs from their table down to the poor. This is about building a state that works for the working classes. And she asked this wonderful question, what do we even have a state for if not to look after the well-being of its citizens and the well-being of its future generations? Clearly, at this point, she's already a Bolshevik. She's already thrown in her lot with the other Bolsheviks. But I also think what's interesting about this essay is that it's very clear that she also sees value in reform. She wants the whole package, but she also understands that incremental steps on the way to that whole package are also important because there are women who are having children or who are pregnant exactly at the moment that she's writing this, who need any and all forms of help that they can get. And so one of the things that this essay really helps us understand is that revolution and reform are not necessarily antagonists, that you can have, you can actually be in favor of certain kinds of reforms while not losing sight of the larger revolutionary goals. Remember, Kolontai was a Menshevik, before she became a Bolshevik, but she's also very much concerned about the practical well-being of women that are alive in the moment that she's writing the pamphlet. And so while, yes, their lives would be better served by having the revolution right away, she also understands the value of these incremental steps that are trying to expand resources and supports for working mothers. And again, of course, we know she doesn't know it when she's writing this, but we know that the revolution is only a year away. But I think it's important for us to remember that sometimes, you know, when we get into these arguments on the left about revolution or reform, there is this tendency for some people to say that, you know, people who advocate reform or who allow for reform are actually propping up the capitalist system in some ways, which there is an argument to be made that is the case. But I also think there is a case to be made for the fact that sometimes reform, to the extent that that the bourgeois classes or the elite classes in power start making concessions to the working class, sometimes the working classes or sometimes the precarious classes start demanding more. And it is in the process of demanding reforms that they become revolutionized, they become radicalized, and they actually start to achieve these larger goals. So anyway, that's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, keep up the good fight.